Welcome to Cracking Charity Chat, learning from the leaders with me, Beth Crackles. In this episode, I'm joined by Kate Collins, Chief Exec at Teenage Cancer Trust. We talk about Kate's journey at Teenage Cancer Trust and the journey of the organisation more broadly, which is really interesting. We also touch on strategy, fundraising and celebrities. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, Kate. Thanks for joining me today. My pleasure. No problem. And it's World Cancer Day. So what better place to be than at Teenage Cancer Trust? Any day, I would say, but I am <laughs> I am fairly biased. But no, it's great to be talking to you on, on World Cancer Day. Would you like to start by giving us a bit of background about yourself and about Teenage Cancer Trust itself? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll do my kind of Teenage Cancer Trust journey a bit first. Everyone's on a journey these days, aren't they? I joined, and I can't believe it, it, it'll be 10 years this October since I joined Teenage Cancer Trust. So started with the charity originally to help not quite set up because the regional fundraising team already existed, but really to come in to kind of formalise and structure that team and build it into one team so really build up the regional fundraising program and then a variety of jobs within fundraising most most recently director of fundraising and marketing and then March last year became chief executive so I've had that really phenomenal I guess fortune to have a time with an organization that's been growing at the same time as I've been growing and the things that I've been really keen to stretch myself into have often, not always, but often been the things that the charity's been like, oh, we could really do with someone who's going to give that a go and, and help us work this out. So it's been a really terrific organisation to to be and to, to grow in, as well as the organisation growing. And you have a really interesting background working in organisations like BBC Children in Need and Cancer Research UK as well. So how did you find that shift from really large organisations like that to coming to Teenage Cancer Trust and developing a regional fundraising programme? It was a huge change. It was quite a deliberate change on my part um I had a fabulous fabulous amount of career development at Cancer Research UK Mm. and was able to to get investment in a way that an organization say Teenage Cancer Trust size couldn't do I got investment in my development and I'll be hugely grateful to them for that forever and I think the big organizations do a brilliant job of of growing leaders for the sector as Mm. well as for themselves Um, and I had my son in 2007 and when I returned to work having had Elliot I knew I needed to work somewhere where for me I saw a closer connection between what I did every day as a fundraiser and the difference the organisation could make with the effort that I and my team were putting in and that needed to be a smaller organisation for for me not taking anything away from the big organisations when I say that Um, and also one that was more directly involved in in service provision rather than research which is a a long-term big picture game so um, yeah it was quite a deliberate shift on my part and prior to being at Cancer Research UK I was at BBC Children in Need which when I was there which is now many many moons ago the first appeal I did was in 1999 uh, there were 35 people that worked at Children in Need then so actually it was a very small organisation but part of the enormous organisation that is yeah. the BBC so for me that felt like a bit of both yeah. um, and then moved um, to Cancer Research UK just after the merger of Cancer Research Campaign yeah. and Imperial Cancer Research Fund so I was one of the first CRUK people that didn't have a, a history or heritage of either kind of founding organisation that, that created CRUK. So that was fascinating from a culture point of view yeah, in the organisation. Yeah, so yeah, I'm, I'm always, um, always keen to look at where I can stretch 
and learn and and where that that makes a difference to the organization yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm part of so should we talk a bit about your journey at teenage cancer trust so as i understand it you were recruited to develop a new regional fundraising program where was the organization at when you joined and how did you go about approaching that well the organization had um had a big tipping point in 2005 so Teenage Cancer Trust's very first um, ward, specialist unit for young people, opened in 1990 and the organisation lobbied hard that young people were different. Young people with cancer needed something that wasn't what was being provided for children and wasn't what was being provided for adults. And in 2005, um, the National Institute of Health and Clinical Excellence uh, introduced the Improving Outcomes Guidance that said there had to be age-appropriate care for young people with cancer. So at that point, Teenage Cancer Trust went from being, I suppose, a demanding organisation that was demanding change to an organisation that had a model and became in demand. So it was a real tipping point in terms of engagement with with service provision and actually the difference the organisation could make. Um, and, and on the back of that began to grow relatively rapidly in terms of being able to get buy-in from major cancer hospitals to put in a teenage cancer trust unit. So I joined a few years into that kind of growth phase for the organisation. And I think when organisations grow in that situation, they often grow quite quickly, quite rapidly. You haven't always got the process and systems in place. You haven't always joined the dots. You're very opportunistic, entrepreneurial, making the most of every opportunity. So I joined a really high energy organisation that was was doing everything. And, and part of my job was to make sure it could keep doing everything that was needed from a fundraising point of view, but also make sure we were joining the dots internally and that we weren't reinventing the wheel in every region that then needed a, a teenage cancer trust unit. So being able to really build that team and build ways of working across the organisation. And was regional fundraising already in place at that point? Yeah, it was more of a capital appeals model. So effectively, right. if the organisation got the got the relationship and the buy-in from some of those real trailblazer hospitals early on in, in that period where they said, you know what, actually we will do a teenage cancer trust unit for young people that we treat, we would typically at that point put a regional fundraising manager in on the ground onto a patch where we had zero brand traction, zero awareness and say to them, say to them, OK, here's a here's a brand new patch. Um, you need probably two, three million in a couple of years. Go. <laughs> and those amazing people, I would be terrible at that job. But we employ people who were not terrible at that. So I came into an organisation that had regional fundraising managers um, who'd all got phases of, of fundraising at different stages of really early doors to some much more mature and established and and with a clear line of sight on the kind of multi-million pounds being raised from local communities to make those hospital wards mm. reality so quite a mixed patch and then it was about shifting our fundraising from capital into revenue so that we could keep yeah. up with running costs we could expand the nursing team we could expand the team of youth support coordinators and really make sure that we had the specialist expertise in place to make sure young people had everything they need so how does that work now i assume you still have a capital appeal model when you have new units to be built but do you, it feels like you have a bit more presence now yeah absolutely so we've 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 pretty much got all of the physical units in place that that we need and that young people need but not all young people uh do the sometimes really enormous amount of travel to get to those units particularly young people from the age of 17 18 up to 24 25 we support young people from 13 up to 24 25 so the 
older young people, if that doesn't sound daft, um, get a, get a choice often of place of treatment. They don't have to be treated in the main cancer hospital if their cancer isn't that rare, if there's a chance that they could have their treatment closer to home. And quite understandably, often they choose to do that. And, mm. and what that means is we've started to expand our nursing and new support coordinator workforce out in those regional hospitals to make sure that young people don't go fall through the gaps of that and effectively yeah. still face cancer alone without the support they need. And it's the youth support coordinators that you're talking about today for World Cancer Day, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think we've um, we've got a terrific team of youth support coordinators across the UK. And it's it's I'm delighted that we're able to shine the spotlight on the difference they make because alongside our specialist nursing team, those youth support coordinators are often the real anchor for young people, mm. the, the person who is always in their corner, who is their go-to person, who will spot if they maybe need a bit more of a nudge to engage socially, maybe need picking up. They will spot those early signs of mm. some of the impact that cancer has that is not is not purely physical. And we always say young person first, cancer patient second. And I think our, our youth support coordinators yeah. do a magnificent job of that. I looked at the 30 second video that you shared on LinkedIn, actually. And I think that really comes across throughout your annual report and your website and all your other communications that it's a really warm, inclusive, positive organisation. It feels it feels really lovely as soon as you walk through the door and you're and you're offered a cup of tea. Actually, yeah, I mean we're, we're pretty messy. It often feels like working in a teenage bedroom. So I think we, yeah. <laughs> but I think I think there's something about for me the the day that young people say that we're making a difference that is different to what we as an organisation say, then that means we're wrong. Mm. So I'm a re- I really believe that the difference is, should be measured in, in how the people that you make a difference to articulate it mm. rather than a set of corporate messages. So something I'm not entirely clear on is the role of the NHS. So I understand that NICE guidance says that there needs to be appropriate, age-appropriate support for people living with cancer, but that Teenage Cancer Trust receives no government funding. So can you talk to me about what the NHS actually does? Is it that that they don't actually deliver in this area or or what's the situation there? They do deliver it. What what the NHS wouldn't do and certainly doesn't have the funds to do is the level of enhancements to spaces. So if you see a Teenage Cancer Trust unit, it does not look like a typical hospital ward, you know. And I can remember the first Teenage Cancer Trust unit I walked on, it's almost like going show my age now but the wizard of oz when you go from black and white into into kind of full-on technicolor where actually there's pool tables there's jukeboxes there's comfortable seating there's places that people can stay over in the same room as a young person much bigger rooms Mm. much bigger space and teenage cancer trust effectively our supporters invest the money with us to make sure that we can enhance Mm. those spaces and also we've built the specialism of teenage and young adult nursing um, as well as youth support coordinators and we really are, I think lots of charities do this across the NHS, enhance the the base that the NHS yeah. can put in. Teenage Cancer Trust has been a real trailblazing organisation. So we spent the last nearly 30 years building up the evidence base of, of how doing what we do makes a difference. We're very much in partnership with the NHS, you know, without, without them working with us, without them being open to listen to our expertise, it wouldn't happen. But at the same time, we're doing things that they can't do. It's not that they wouldn't, it's that they can't. Do you find any challenges around that kind of funding model? Because I know some people just don't want to fund things that they feel should be delivered and funded by the NHS. And and some health charities don't even like to ask funders for 
for funding sometimes because there is that perception that the NHS should be funding it. So do you find that or do you find that some people that, that funders are more um, sympathetic or empathetic towards you? Well, I'm never afraid to ask for money. <laughs> I'm never afraid to ask for support. And I don't think uh, I've ever seen Teenage Cancer Trust be afraid to say what young people need and that young people need to be treated differently. I've had conversations with potential supporters where, where people have said, but surely the NHS should do all of this. But I think people in their heart of hearts know that the NHS doesn't have a bottomless kind of pockets of money. Um, but also, I guess one of the real good things I guess about cancer in young people is that it's relatively rare so the NHS is always going to focus on higher volumes of patients where they can make a bigger difference and and in young people with cancer if Teenage Cancer Trust didn't exist and wasn't standing up for them then they would absolutely fall through the cracks and and we used to call them a lost generation when we started out as an organisation because they were either treated as children or as kind of adults and you're different when you're a young person you're really different you're in that in-betweeny stage you know if teenage cancer just didn't exist then actually the voice of young people would be lost and our mm. job is to amplify that I've always thought of it as you're giving people the chance to make a huge difference mm. actually and so yeah they might do that through giving funds they might do that through a corporate partnership or their own personal donation but I mean, they might do that through giving their time they might do that mm. through giving their networks their energy their advice it's a great thing to be part of and it's much bigger than mm. teenage cancer trust you know there's there's lots of organizations bringing different strengths to the table to make sure young people don't get lost and that's that excites me yeah let's move on to talk about collaboration then so clearly you collaborate with a lot of organizations but I think the one that really springs to mind is Click Sergeant. Um, and we see a lot of charities collaborating with each other on certain projects and that's all really great. But yours feels really kind of ingrained. Just from reading the annual report and following bits and bobs on Twitter, I think with Click Sergeant alone, you know, your, your collaboration spans delivery. So the learning module for healthcare professionals, for example, on the campaigning and policy side, you set up the all-parliamentary group together. On the strategy side, you've come together with Click Sergeant and with other cancer charities to look at how your individual charity strategies can complement each other, make sure you're not duplicating. So tell me about your approach to that. I think there's two things. I think partly it's about being really focused on where your organisation makes the biggest difference because no one organisation can do everything. Um, so partly it's about being focused on actually what what are the things that Teenage Cancer Trust is best placed to make the biggest difference to for young people with cancer and and who else do we need to work with in order to to make that a big picture because Teenage Cancer Trust not the only kid on the block and and actually I think for us there's a certainly for me there's a real values piece that we talk about young people not facing cancer alone. We talk about young people needing a network of support. And actually, charities themselves need to form that network of support. So you, you can't you can't you can't talk to people about being part of a community and being part of kind of a group that can pull together to support a young person without mirroring that yourself as an organization. So we're really clear about where we make the biggest difference, where our expertise is and where it makes sense for it to be Teenage Cancer Trust's voice leading. Mm -hmm. um, and a fabulous example of this in my 
ever so humble opinion uh, a few weeks ago was we we released a report actually looking at the data from Public Health England um, looking at the survival rates of young people with cancer for the first time ever that 13 to 24 year old data set was really rigorously analysed and actually I went to the the children and young people's kind of cancer charities coalition uh, which is chaired by Kate Lee from Click and brilliantly vice chaired by Frank Fletcher from Ellen MacArthur Cancer Trust and and asked all those organisations if they would support Teenage Cancer Trust by either on their own personal Twitter accounts talking about the research or getting their organisations on board and every single one of them came through in a heartbeat they were like absolutely because it's about what young people need and how do we how do we shine a light on who's doing great work in that area so I think it's about being able to be really focused on where each organisation's got strength that it brings no one organisation can do everything and, and nor should you try yeah. um, and then actually it's, it's about being prepared to share. So let's move on and talk a little bit about strategy. Within your annual report, you state that you need to raise 20 million a year to reach all young people with cancer. And I'm really interested to hear about how you've modelled that and the sort of process that you've been through to get to that point. I mean, that's um, very much our, that's our current strategy. So that runs until 2020, which unbelievably is next year. It's yeah. quite a sci-fi date. I'm like, oh my goodness, <laughs> oh my goodness, where's that coming? So we're actually going through a process of looking at what our our next strategic kind of period needs to look at from 2020 to 2025 so I was clearly part of the senior leadership team that developed our current plan and really for me strategy is about what are the big questions two or three that an organisation needs to answer over a fixed period and what we knew at the start of our 2015 strategy was a little bit like I talked about earlier, that not all young people were using or choosing to go to the Teenage Cancer Trust units that we'd built across the UK. We needed to understand why that was and we needed to understand actually how best did we offer them support in a way that worked for them because I heard somebody once talk about saying, you know, don't say I'm unreachable, you just I'm easy to reach if you reach me in the right way. So, you know, we built this network of units um, and really the current strategy is about making sure there's those more nurses across the UK to make sure that young people um, are given the, given the choice and given the specialist support that they need. We, I guess in quite headline terms, knew that would need significantly more, not one-off investment from Teenage mm-hmm. Cancer Trust, but that's an ongoing revenue commitment. So how do we build that sustainable base where you don't just grow to 20 million with one kind of big year where you get some big partnerships that you then have a lifetime have a lifespan to them and you've got to replace so really it's been about trying to to grow that kind of volume and we've particularly focused on challenge events so winning the virgin money london marathon partnership was really big for teenage cancer trust how do we use that I guess, lively, very teenage cancerous, lively and noisy um, kind of fundraising approach to, to draw people in, um, principally because we didn't have necessarily the, the funds or possibly sometimes the organisational skill set to really go for high volume recruitment, maybe through regular giving. Yeah. Um, and then also, how do we start? And we're just really looking at this now. How do we look at actually some of our kind of major major giving relationships how do we expand some of those our music relationships special events actually what's what's the path for teenage cancer trust in some of those 
So how do you see that working in the future? What does your fundraising mix look like in the future? Because I think with challenge events, it is that kind of start again with recruitment each year, isn't it? They are in a lot of ways. Often we find challenge events are one of the first things that what I would call the the inspired community around a young person Mm. want to do. So there's that really human instinct in in certain, probably in all of us, but I can't speak for all of us. But when something, quite frankly, bloody awful happens, like a cancer diagnosis, the community around the person that that has happened to wants to act and do something Mm. and show support. And sometimes fundraising is that. Now, we don't expect people to fundraise because we've supported them or someone that yeah. they know. Clearly, we don't. But actually, as we expand the the level of, of young people that we're able to support, those communities who see the value of what it is that Teenage Cancer Trust does have been quite profoundly moved to want to give back, to want yeah. to support us. So challenge events are a real kind of gateway into the organisation and then really for us it's about looking at their stewardship on from that helping them understand the difference that ongoing support makes and being able to to get smart with how we use data and how we understand our audiences to to make sure that we can offer people things that are right for them and understand them so that they can find the things that are right for them would be the ideal you know in in old old old-fashioned fundraising terms we've kind of got the middle of the pyramid we've got challenge events we've got community fundraising we've got um corporate partnerships where we've we've got a really strong track record and a a great brand for corporate partnerships and got some wonderful corporate partners who who really get us and are with us for the long haul which makes a huge difference um and i think for us it's going to be about looking at particularly things like our music fundraising and how do we expand those into special events and higher value fundraising and you know I'm not the director of fundraising anymore. It's lovely Liz Tate now. Um, so, And I know she's working really hard with the team since she's joined us just in November. Uh, mm. So a very short period of time, really, that she's been with us to really look at actually what is our true potential and what investment do we need to make um, in order to realise some of that and and what's our risk appetite. I'm excited to be able to to see Liz bring her mark and her shape to to fundraising. Yeah. She's enormously talented, so I think she's quite happy um, just getting on with it and, and using me as a chief exec who's hopefully got a lot of organisational history and knowledge, but I am no longer the director of fundraising. But fundraising is clearly a big part of what any chief exec, in my opinion, should be doing. Oh, well, I look forward to seeing what happens with your fundraising over the coming years. Should we move on to talk a bit about celebrities? So from me sitting on the outside, it feels like there are two um, sort of elements to this. One is proactive around the sort of amazing music experiences and gigs that you put on at the Royal Albert Hall. And the other is sort of more reactive piece, which we'll come on to in a bit. So with your music gigs, obviously, that's absolutely key to the the fabric of the organisation, if you like. And I noticed that uh, Roger Daltrey has been involved uh, right from the beginning, which I imagine is really um, incredibly positive um, but also quite interesting as well in terms of his his involvement so I wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about that. Roger got involved with the very first gig which was the Who and Friends at the Royal Albert Hall uh, in the year 2000 so next year 2020 will be our 20th year of gigs at the Royal Albert Hall and it's gone from being that one night that one-off event (laughs) this once in a lifetime one-off to now being seven nights um 
every year. Um, so one week where we um, work with the Royal Albert Hall. I think it's a week where we all feel quite a lot older at the end of it, <laughs> yeah, but just possibly a bit more tired. And really, Roger is the curator of those events, the driving force behind them. And the Royal Albert Hall is starting their celebrations for their 150th birthday, which will happen in 2021. Okay. And they um, have instituted something called the Royal Albert Hall Stars, and they did their first 12. So the stars are engraved in some of the paving stones outside the Royal Albert Hall. And they they gave one for, to Roger Daltrey for his tireless work for Teenage Cancer mm. Trust. And Roger's incredibly involved in the organisation, in in knowing what we're doing, knowing what we're doing next. Um, and it's a, a real privilege um, to have his support. It's not superficial in yeah. the slightest. And he brings people to the organisation who, who get that vision. And he's hugely driven by by injustice, by righting a wrong. And initially that was that young people weren't even seen within a healthcare system. And now it's around making sure they have everything they need because it's particularly cruel to get cancer at that young point in your life where life is just opening up. And Roger always says that he wouldn't have had the career he'd had without young people buying his records. So actually he really passionately feels the music industry should be giving back to young people. And then the shows themselves, there's actually a relatively small, incredibly talented group of people who work very hard with Roger to secure the lineup every Mm. year. And really live music is one of the few ways that musicians and artists make money these days so for an act to choose to play for Teenage Cancer Trust it means they probably can't play and sell out another London gig for a good few months because they'll have sold all those tickets so it's a huge donation that it's not just their time it's their the income that they can't get by by playing that gig themselves for their own profit so yeah it's a pretty special week and when is that this year it's the very last week of march normally it's around the last week of march gosh so you're gearing up for it now yes gearing up for it yeah and we'll be it'll be here before we know it there's six nights of music and then one night of comedy it's a great week it's a really quite surreal week um it's not how my week normally is okay that's really interesting thank you can we talk a little bit about the reactive approach to working with um, sort of high profile individuals as well and how you respond or build capacity for sort of incredible external happenings. I'm not even sure how to frame it really, but the person that springs to mind is Stephen Sutton and his incredible story really which he told so powerfully himself and to the benefit of Teenage Cancer Trust so how did you go about supporting him with that and and building capacity if you needed to? Um, I don't think you can build capacity around a story like that and certainly um, what happened with Stephen and his story was it was his story and we were really clear throughout that that this wasn't about Teenage Cancer Trust. It was about a young man who was sharing his experience, his way, and had chosen Teenage Cancer Trust to be the charity that benefited from any fundraising that came with that, um, with an initial target of raising £10,000 and then he put that up to a million. Um, and I can remember phoning him up to say... This million pound target, it's quite, it's quite a lot of pressure, you know, Stephen. I would hate you to feel that, you know, I mean, we'd be delighted if you raised a million pounds. But, you know, the hundred thousand was amazing. You know, I was just and um, and he was he sort of I could hear him on the phone. You could almost feel the head shake of what's wrong with this woman? You know, <laughs> yeah. uh, and I was like, you know, I would hate you to feel pressured. And he was like, look, Kate, 
it'll be fine. You know, this is what I want to do. And, mm-hmm. and, and actually he set the tone of that. And I think for me, Teenage Cancer Trust, well, we reacted like people rather than as an organisation, yeah. rather than as a brand. It wasn't deliberate, but we just, we followed our, I guess, what did our, what did our gut tell us was the right thing to do? Um, how did we do what we could to make that uh, safe? For Stephen, how did we make that positive? How did we talk to him about some of the some of the downsides of being really visible on social media? You know, he yeah. got he got trolling when he because he did the 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 kind of message on his Facebook page that his what he thought was his final thumbs up, and he thought he was uh, he'd been told he was incredibly close to dying, and he mm. posted a profoundly moving message that mobilised people to give to try and get to his million pound target um, Mm. before he died and actually his health rallied during that period and he was able to go home which nobody had thought was going to be possible he had people trolling him saying yeah you're a faker and all sorts of stuff and he dealt with them as like yeah sorry about that but I'm you know terribly sorry to still be alive (laughs) he dealt with it he dealt with it in in his way but I think as an organisation you know you've got to be really careful that that you help people understand some of the downsides and some of the less attractive parts of human nature that might come to the fore and I think we were also as as wary as we could be about other young people going through treatment thinking that they now had some sort of responsibility to inspire the nation with their story I mean actually just getting your head down and coping with the shitstorm that is cancer treatment Mm -hmm. is is enough you know there's there's no expectation mm. so we can't we can't build capacity for another Stephen or there's there's kind of no way you just have to understand what's happening on a human level and try um to try and respond in the most human way you can and try and not make it brand driven and organization driven I think people get quite cynical about that if they see what looks like an organization getting on the back of something that would just have felt instinctively wrong for us which is why we were really clear it was Stephen's story we were careful about how much we branded ourselves or not when we were being media spokespeople through that and our job was to amplify his voice to amplify the difference that this would make for young people Mm. with cancer and to to do what we could to honor his intention and since Stephen died working with his mum Jane to make sure as much as as much as we can that we're like actually what works now what 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 keeps that intent of his alive and going and and how are we in line with that you know I had a couple of different kind of directors in different organizations tell me we should have made that more about our brand and that we missed Mm -hmm. some commercial opportunity to really push the teenage cancer trust brand through it and and that we should have been more you know someone once said to me that you should have been more aggressive through that and it just it's just not the way it just didn't sit right for us to to approach in that way it might be right for a different organization to take a different tack you you've got to kind of go with your yeah go with go with what works for for you and the way you work as an organization and we we talk about being like a family at teenage mm. cancer trust and you've got to kind of stay tuned into that i think yeah absolutely and what was the final total that stephen raised in the end the money that Stevens inspired for Teenage Cancer Trust is still going up, clearly not at the same rate, but his mum, Jane, and the community in Burntwood, and, and actually more widely than that across Staffordshire, is still fundraising mm-hmm. for Stevens' story. So the total's over £5.5 million pounds that, that he inspired for Teenage Cancer Trust. It's phenomenal. 
phenomenal yeah. achievement. And and actually, a lot of the funds that Stephen inspired um, helped us really complete that unit building program mm-hmm. that we talked about of actually how do we make sure all these teenage cancer trust units happen so we were able to put that money to work really quickly which was a yeah. big thing that kind of um tipped us into the ability to say right now we can really look at how do we expand the nursing team across the UK to reach all the young people who need us. And you invested in people being able to attend the Global Congress as well, didn't you? And um, medical scholarships as well, I think. Yeah, there's a few things that we, there a few things that we were doing, but we've been able to do at bigger scale. Yeah. Um, so, and Stephen himself wanted to be a doctor. So for us, with all the all the work that we do, um, enhancing professional development of healthcare professionals who work with young people with cancer, we've got a programme of work with Coventry University. So to be able to create the Stephen Sutton scholarships felt really fitting. And what a wonderful legacy. So the final question that I ask to everybody is, is there a book, person or ethos that has inspired your work? The book I reread the most is The Happy Manifesto by Henry Stewart, which sounds much more political than it is. Um, Henry Stewart set up Happy Computers, if you've ever been oh, for a training yeah, course at Happy yeah, Computers, yeah. they have ice cream, uh, which is fantastic. Yeah, um, and the courses are great too. Um, but the book that Henry wrote, The Happy Manifesto, is I like it because it's really simple and I'm quite uh, simple and straightforward. And it really just sets out some principles that I'm not necessarily saying I always get right as a leader, but that I like to go back to, which is about how do you start from a place of trust with people? How do you empower people to do their best work and be their whole selves? And sometimes quite a lot of the things that organisations do because that's what organisations do often we build structures and processes because that's what makes us feel like we're doing the right things and sometimes that can really restrict people and I think the happy manifesto is something I go back and actually people should be happy at work Mm. and fulfilled at work and and how do you see the person um really well so I that's that's the book that I reread the most I read loads I listen to podcasts and I I love Twitter and I love finding out different things and seeing what's going on but that would be the one I'd go back to most it sounds good I'll check it out thanks so much for joining me Kay I really appreciate it you're welcome cheers At the end of each podcast, I usually give two or three key learnings that I've taken from speaking with my guest. And on this occasion, I'm just going to say there's one big learning that's come out for me. And that is when Kate said we reacted like people. And I think this comes across really strongly. It comes across in the website. It comes across when you first walk into the office and it comes across when you first meet Kate as well. Everything about the organisation feels completely genuine and completely geared towards supporting young people. And I know a lot of organisations organisations say that they do that but I don't think I've ever felt it come across so strongly before so reacting like people is absolutely the number one thing that I take away from this I hope that you've enjoyed listening as well I hope to catch you next time thanks